Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio as we ease on into WIP Sunday. And it's going to be cloudy, but okay this morning here in the Delaware Valley, WIP Sunday. But as the day progresses, it's going to get cloudier, it's going to get rainier. So if you got to be out in the back, go out this morning and take 94 WIP with you no matter where you go. Always good conversation. And to begin the good conversation this morning here on WIP Sunday, you're puzzling about what to get dad for Father's Day? Or mom, if she's the father in the family, if you will? Well, if the kids are a little older, why not take the entire family, or just dad, to the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion? I know I've had the Maxwell Mansion on before, and they'll be on again and probably again. They've always got something going there at that beautiful house, and today's this Father's Day weekend is no exception. Let me welcome Diane Richardson, the executive director of the mansion, to tell us about what's going on Father's Day weekend. Good morning, Diane Richardson. Good morning, Peter. Let's remind people what the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion is. Um, the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion is Philadelphia's only authentically restored Victorian house, museum, and garden. And we are located in the Germantown section of Philadelphia, and we're the cornerstone of the Topahawken Station Historic District which is on the National Register as one of America's first railroad suburbs. So, you know, we're an important uh, part of history in Philadelphia. Which is interesting to me because so many people think Philadelphia and they think colonial. Yes, it's true. So much more, though, with Philadelphia is actually Victorian, isn't it? It is. And, you know, yesterday, I guess guess it was on Friday, I had a, a couple from Michigan who were visiting Philadelphia and the only house museum that they were planning to visit was the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion. So that's, that's interesting to me. Absolutely. A lot of people secretly, if not so secretly, love Victorian. <laughs> but that's, that's another discussion. Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is indeed. All right. What do we find at the mansion when we come to visit generally? Um, well, you know, you, it, when you walk through the, we have these beautiful uh, iron fences, and you walk through the gates up the brick walkway to the front door, and you're transported back to the 19th century in Philadelphia. And you, when you walk through the front door, you enter um, interiors that are just as they would have been when Ebenezer and Anna Maxwell and their six children lived there in the 1860s. And then if you... Um, take the tour, you'll learn that the downstairs is interpreted to the 1860 time period during the American Civil War and the Industrial Revolution. But when you go upstairs, the upstairs is interpreted to a later period, post-centennial Philadelphia, when the second family, William and Rosalie Hunter, and then later Rosalie and Howard Stevenson, the same woman but two different husbands, lived there. And the Hunter Stevensons had more money. So the upstairs represents a little bit more money. So it's quite a fascinating um, experience. And right now, um, in addition to our special Victorian theater uh, production that we're offering next weekend, we have a um, um, an art show where uh, contemporary artists, three women, came through the building in um, January of 2017, and each artist spent time with the collection, and each one of them chose a collection item to inspire them, and then they created artwork 
surrounding um, that 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 uh, uh, you know based on that item. So one of the artists chose the um, 1865 Sky Square Grand Piano, manufactured in Baltimore. It's Brazilian rosewood with mother of pearl inlays. That in itself. Just if the only thing you see when you come to the mansion is that piano, you got your money's worth. But she chose that as their inspiration, and she creates art on porcelain. And she um, studied parlor music from the 19th century. And, um, you know, then we have porcelain uh, sheet music lying on the piano. I mean, it's, it's quite incredible. So, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And one of the things I love about the mansion is not only do you learn about this piece of furniture and that piece of furniture, but you learn how people lived with the things. That is exactly that is exactly what we're trying to do. All right. Now, what is this Victorian theater stuff? Well, very, very fascinating, uh, Peter. This is the 10th anniversary of the creative director, Josh Hitchens, uh, working for the mansion. And... Um, he was hired in 2008 to write the murder mystery, write and direct the murder mystery event. And, um, and then a, a year or so later, or two years later, he approached me and wanted to know if he could do a one-person performance of Dickens' Christmas Carol. And so I previewed that, and we, we had him do that. And then subsequently he wanted to do Stoker's Dracula, which he did, and that was picked up by Philly Fringe. And then um, shortly thereafter, he thought that we could do full plays in the parlor. So the first um, full play we did was a Sherlock Holmes mystery. And um, we did, I believe we did three or four of those. And then, you know, it it just grew from there. And actually, it has been... People come to the mansion to see these, so it has really, um, really put us, you know, on the map, so to speak. Although I can't tell you how many people say they never heard of us. So, you <laughs> well, know, we can do better. <laughs> and that's what we're trying to do here on WIP. Yes, thank you, Peter. My pleasure. Need this. All right, one of the things that impresses me about the idea of theater in the mansion—it's not your typical proscenium theater like the Merriam Theater. No. It's, it's not even dinner theater or theater in the round. No. It's theater in the environment where these plays could have happened. Well, you're not going to um, get a better, even on Broadway, you are not going to get a better backdrop, better scenery than you're going to get in the mansion. So this this afternoon is the first full rehearsal at the mansion, and um, the, the play will take place in the parlor, Chekhov's Three Sisters, that we're doing next Saturday. And um, so on Friday, uh, we set up the room. So we remove the uh, Renaissance Revival uh, furniture with the gold damask um, upholstery, and we, we place in the room about 30 chairs. But still, when you walk in, you're, you're, you see the... Um, the bay window with the parlor dome filled with shell art. You know, part of, part of the scenery for this play will be the mantle with the the um, the Rococo Revival gold leaf mirror over it and the piano. And you know, so you're you're in the exact room with the with the actors, and you've got as a backdrop that Rococo Revival Scalamandre documentary reproduction wallpaper and those magnificent silk draperies um, with the Lamberkins and um, 
lace curtains, you know, that is your that is your scenery. You can't beat it. Almost the setting that Chekhov might have envisioned when he wrote The Three Sisters. That's right. That's right, Peter. Yep. Mm-hmm. And now the play you're doing next weekend, Father's Day weekend, is The Three Sisters by Anton Chekhov. That's correct. And people think Chekhov and they go, heavy. <laughs> well, and it's kind of true, I think, Peter, don't you? But mm. I was, you know, I wasn't that familiar with Chekhov. And Josh Hitchens, you know, just wanted to do this. And, and um, we were actually going to do something else and we couldn't get a license for it. So he just sort of sent me an email, said, let's do this. And that's that's what happened. And then when he sent me his draft of the play, it has to be obviously modified to, to fit our setting. And I read it, I thought, this is a bit, I don't know, you know, this seems, this seems a little depressing. And, but then I saw a preview of Act One when we, were, when we were doing the photo shoot for the publicity photos, and it is just so compelling. And the, uh, Josh, for this particular play, has a co-director, Ryan Walter, and he said to me, Diane, Chekhov is not a play that you can read. You have to hear it and see it. And uh, Chekhov is known for um, combining um, combining humor with tragedy, tragedy and comic. And Three Sisters, this is exactly it. And it's the story of um, a family that goes through great hardship and how they deal with it. Well, isn't that just life, <laughs> Peter? <laughs> it sounds like today. Do we think <laughs> we can take it out of Russia and put it in Philadelphia? We could totally, we could totally bring it home today, right? Diane, from your point of view as a museum, though, why do you do the Victorian Theater? You know, it's a way of um, educating the public in a fun way about what it was like to live back then, and and bringing bringing history to life. And you know, we I work with these amazingly. I mean, these. I don't really do anything, but I, I get to be around these amazingly talented young actors and actresses. And, um, for example, the three sisters are Christina Higgins, and she was the star of Tribulation Periwinkle last spring, and then Megan Edelman and her sister Molly Edelman, who also, Molly starred as um, Anne and Anne of Green Gables, and those three were... Um, three of the four March sisters in Little Women two, two years ago in 2016. So, you know, we all become sort of, a, it's a close-knit group, but then the talent is just out of this world. I, I, you know, I pinch myself thinking that I get to do this. Yeah. It's... And, then, and then everybody that comes, you know, has adva- gets, to, gets to enjoy you know, you're just absolutely stepping back in time and stepping into the world of the Chekhov sisters. It's incredible. Absolutely. And it's important that we remember that and we think about not only the need for historic preservation, remembering Philadelphia and America as it used to be, but spicing in a little culture there to make it even more real and more important. How young would you say you can bring someone to see Three Sisters? Well, I would say, depending on the child, um, 12, 10 or 12. You know, if you have a precocious 10-year-old, 10 or 12. And it, it would be a wonderful family experience, you know. So, yes. 
No bad words, I take it. I No, no, I don't think so. Well, I haven't seen the whole play, but I don't think so, no. <laughs> well, if there were bad words, I'm sure this are, may he rest in peace, would have been yeah. turning over in his grave. Right, um, right. So if you've got kids older than 10 and 12, and you're looking for something to do this Father's Day weekend, June 15th, Saturday the 16th, or Sunday the 17th, consider going to the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion, 200 West Topahawken Street, to check out Anton Chekhov's Three Sisters. It's a very different version of the play than you may have ever seen before or heard of before. Not happening in an art house. It's happening in a museum, a museum where you can learn about Philadelphia as it used to be. Now, Diane, the Maxwell Mansion has a website. Yes, EbenezerMaxwellMansion.org, and you can buy your tickets online, or you can call me at 215-438-1861, and I'll be there um, maybe around 11 this morning, um, and I'll, I'll be there Tuesday through next Sunday. So call at any time. If I'm not there, leave a message. I'll call you back, but you can also buy your tickets online. And you take credit cards, don't you? We do. Visa, MasterCard, American Express. Yes, we do. Bless your heart for being modern. <laughs> Modern finances in an old Victorian setting. Well, it's true. I had here's a really funny thing, Peter. I had I have two docents that make their own costumes, and they're fabulous. They're costumers, and one day they were sitting in my office in their costumes, and the two of them are on their iPhones. So, you know, modern and not so modern. <laughs> Must be confusing, certainly. Although I should add something. If you yeah, do t- it was it was really hilarious. I took a I took a picture of it and put it on Facebook. <laughs> Certainly, if you go to see the three sisters next weekend, that's one thing. But if you're going to take a tour of the mansion as well, can you do that when you come to see three sisters? You can't when you come three, to see three sisters. However, the downstairs is open for viewing, so you you can um, and you'll get to see the art exhibition. At least two of the two of the pieces in the art exhibition. And, and we serve refreshments in the um, 1860s kitchen. So um, people really enjoy that. Well, I'm sure. The reason I was asking is, um, being historically accurate, the mansion, unfortunately, isn't handicapped accessible. Unfortunately, no. We, it ta- there are three steps to get up into the building. If you have a walker or a cane, that works. A wheelchair, unfortunately, does not work. But certainly, um, and then if you're coming to the play, you just have to get up the three steps, and then it's right around the corner in the in the first room on the left. So, people with um, walkers and canes do do come on tours. Um, if they can't go up the stairs, they just um, we seat them uh, in the kitchen uh, during the the second part of the tour. So it, we we do our best to accommodate everybody. And I'd like to say thank you to Diane Richardson for being with us here this morning and telling us about the new production, a very innovative production, of Anton Chekhov's Three Sisters happening June 15th, June 16th, and June 17th. Give her a call at 215-438-1861 if you're interested in tickets or more information about the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion. And I also want to thank Diane for taking what was an old dusty museum and making it live again. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Peter. My pleasure. Anytime, Diane. Please Happy remember. Sunday and happy Father's Day. You too. Bye-bye. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And we're back, and it's WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. 
And over the last hour or so, we've been trying to get you in the mood for Father's Day. First, talking about raising happy daughters. Secondly, about something to do on Father's Day if you're looking to do something a little different with Dad and the older kids going to the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion. And now, something to buy, Dad. And to do that, I'm going to invite author Eric Anderson, his new book, Anubis. Good morning, Eric Anderson. Morning, Peter. Good to be here. Good to have you as well. Tell me about Anubis. Imagine you walked into what we have declared the end to the Islamic State and suddenly discover that by removing the physical characteristics of the caliphate, we have indeed made the enemy more dangerous, that it's become a worldwide threat, that it has emerges on targets of its own choosing by using the Internet as a means of communication, and there's very little that we can do about it. Now add to the fact that that terrorist threat has sprawled across the globe and has decided to go into operation on the very day that the United States decides to inaugurate its new president. Welcome to Anubis. Now, this is the second of what's to be a three-book trilogy, isn't it? It is, Peter. And in fact, all three books are done. I'm now working with the publisher to get number three out on, of course, the publisher's schedule. All right. What's the premise of the trilogy? The premise of the trilogy is to look at the evolution of the Islamic State uh, as we first understood it, and that's where Osiris came in, and the, you know, what is the immediate threat that was standing in front of us. Then what happens to this movement as it evolves forward through time and it becomes a target for both the United States and the international community as a whole? And finally, how does the Islamic State morph into something that we would recognize as, as a truly legitimate threat, particularly across the Levant, Northern Africa, and now moving into Europe? And, and what I'm doing is focusing on how the uh, adherence of the Prophet Muhammad managed to go from 650 A.D., where they were a very small presence within the Middle East, to really having reconquered the territory that once belonged to the Roman Empire. And they do that in less than 150 years. And so now I'm rapidly moving ourselves forward into today's age and saying, here's what could happen tomorrow. All right. But as titles, at least in the first two books, you've chosen the names of Egyptian gods. Why? The... Goal is to get people to think outside the box. If we chose something that was recognizable to you know the average reader or somebody who doesn't think about this area, you, you wouldn't sort of be thrown off balance right from the onside. And I, and I don't want, and, and this has been purposeful all the way across the series, I don't want to um, uh, prejudice the reader's perception by giving them titles that would tie it right back to the, to the practice of Islam as we know it but rather to say that this is something that's linked into a far more in-depth culture and, and far further into history than we would have thought. So that's something you're trying to remind us about, the culture that we're dealing with when we're dealing with this terrorist phenomena is really centuries old. Very much so. The, you know, my, my contention is that what you see within the Islamic State is an effort for members of the uh, Islamic faith to redeem what they would argue is a thousand years of shame or humiliation. And that thousand years starts with the Crusades and proceeds through today. And this is their opportunity, particularly the use of the Islamic faith, to come forward and redeem themselves uh, and to redeem their faith. And so you have a persistent threat, not one that's going to die out in a generation, but rather is going to continue rolling along and be a cause for trouble within the decision-making departments of any Western government uh, and certainly governments like France, uh, the Germans, 
the Brits and ourselves. If I'm correct, though, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Osiris and Anubis, gods of death in the underworld? You are absolutely correct. Hmm. So you're trying to tell us something with that as well. <laughs> I'm telling you that it's not a light series. I, I, I recommend it to people that if you're going to read it, don't pick this up and, and lay it down next to your, by, your bedside. Uh, and one of the folks that I work with quite frequently said to me, he's, uh, he's an attorney, he says, yes, I started reading particularly with Anubis, and he said, I started turning pages, and I realized, one, I couldn't go to sleep. He was caught in the story. He said, and then two, it started to make me think long and hard. And that's the intention. It's not, I'm not here to frighten people. I'm here to give them a, a different perspective on how the world operates and then to suggest here's the worst that could be coming. Where'd your perspective come from? Uh, my perspective comes from 25 years within the intelligence community. I worked with various agencies in the U.S. intelligence community and within the U.S. Air Force and uh, spent a number of years within the Middle East itself. Uh, and so I've, I've got hands-on, knees-on, dust-on experience uh, in the, the places that I bring my reader. Okay. Um, but I would imagine then, given experience in intelligence, there's a lot of our intelligence community today it's been looking over your shoulder at your printed page. Uh, absolutely, I have to. I have to bring all my materials into uh, Washington D.C. It goes to the, the, the director of national intelligence. They maintain an office for this, and they go through a pre-release review of the books. Uh, to this point, I've been fortunate. There have been no redactions. Uh, sometimes they're a lot faster than others. It depends on how closely they think I'm treading to the fine edge of divulging how we do the business, rather than the story that I'm trying to tell. Hmm. What do you think is going on with um, ISIS? What are, you, what are you telling us about ISIS that we should know? What I'm trying to tell you with Anubis is that ISIS is in what we would refer to as a retrenchment period, that you have an organization who understands that they've been bloodied and bruised and that they've been pushed out of what they had made their self-proclaimed capital, but that they're not gone. That this is not a, a threat that we should just idly let pass in the dark. Instead, we've got to consider how they would continue to move forward. And remember that you know, this isn't, uh, I guess the best way to put it, this is not a temporal ideology, but rather this is an examination of faith. And it's an examination of the faith of people who are practicing it on a day-in, day-out basis in their own efforts to defend what they see as the honor of their faith. All right. An examination, though, of a faith that believes in torture burning people alive, chopping off heads? Uh, we should be careful to cast stones. I think I've said this to you before, Peter, but this is, a, you know, my contention that there are, are various ways to look at good and evil. There are the 50 shades of gray and the 500 shades of gray. And I would argue with ISIS that we are at the 500 shades of gray. And as good Christians, it's difficult for us to cast stones inside of a glass house. We, we certainly have our own history of equally reprehensible behavior. But we've gotten smarter since then. This is modern-day evil. And are you sure you want to make that statement, that we have become that much more clever? We still find, if you, you watch the practices of the Christian faith across the planet, that there are atrocities that are committed in the name of God, and that there are things that are done that people who have read the Bible and should know better continue to practice. And we, we of course, the demand that this abhorrent uh, abhorrent behavior come to a halt, but it, it lingers on. And I, and I would point to, for instance, the problem that we're having with pedophilia within the Catholic Church. This is an evil that we've known 
existent for hundreds of years and yet has not been addressed. So we have our own problems. Absolutely. All right, I'll buy that. Um, it's the pot calling the kettle black. In many cases, yes. Uh, and it, it's, it, as I would like to explain to people, in many senses, it, it's that very human desire to fear that which we do not understand and from the opposite side to impose upon the, the unbeliever because the unbeliever simply doesn't get the true truth. What do we need to understand, though? What we need to understand is that this is a, a, an embodiment of a religion that seeks, uh, I would argue, legitimacy, and that if we can discover a way to work with them to hone off the, the bitter edges, as you, you so accurately point out, that the, the, the commitment of murder and crimes that we now in modern society would condemn, if we can work with them to, to take that back down to a level that's acceptable to the common mankind and, and a sense of acceptance of your fellow faith is practiced across the globe. So it's not enough that ISIS recognized Christianity, but has to do the same with the Buddhist community uh, and certainly any other faith that would raise its head and say, well, wait, you know, we're, we're an equally legitimate recognition of a practice of faith. Mm. Where, did the original, where did the original idea for the trilogy come from? Simply your experiences in the Middle East? The, the original idea for the, the uh, books came from a, a study that I was doing at the National Intelligence University uh, where I wrote a paper arguing that there's a difference between a revolution and terrorism and that it would behoove us to recognize the difference between the two. Uh, and that, that paper was published in the Small Words Journal and drew a lot of attention. Uh, and somebody said, well, how do you play this out? And the only way that you could play it out was to turn it into historical fiction. Uh, and once I started, it was very difficult to put down. Uh, I could tell you that the books very much wrote themselves. Um, a good deal of research associated, but it was, for me, an interesting time each day to sit down in front of the, the machine and say, okay, now let's put these pieces together and see what comes out on the other side. Uh, and I know that uh, my publisher, Dunn Books, uh, was he was he was very pleased as this thing started rolling across his desk and, and said you know is there more and when he received the third book uh, in a very short time period he said you know what you've obviously found something that you enjoy working on. But why this series as opposed to something else? I mean, you've probably had a lot of experiences in in, in intelligence work that you could have written about besides ISIS. I, well, certainly. In fact, I've got another book coming out in October called Bite B Y T E. Uh, and that looks at the effort to use the, the cyber world to influence not the U.S. elections, but the Russian elections. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, so I've got it, it, different experiences that I like to tap into. I'm working on a manuscript now that I call Final Flight that looks at what potentially happened with Malaysian Air 370, the airframe that disappeared after taking off uh, in Malaysia back in uh, 2014 now. I keep my date straight. Uh, and so it's an ability to reach into... I find the topics that, to me, catch my attention and have left the answers that need to be addressed, not just for myself, but for other people who are interested in the subject area or want to have a conversation at a cocktail party. So you really, you write that phenomenon in literature that some people have called faction, mis mi mixing fact and fiction, playing what if. I, I think that that's a very accurate statement, Peter. I haven't heard the term. I have to admit, you've got me on that one. Okay. Well, I, I give it to you as a present. Um, oh, thank you. You're welcome. Um, why do you think we're so fascinated with faction? 
the, you know, there was a genre that came out, oh, gee, 20 years ago that, that looked at revisionist history. Uh, and it was, well, what happens if the Germans win World War II as opposed to being defeated? Uh, same thing for the Japanese. Uh, same thing for revising the American Civil War or, or going in and looking at, you know, transitions in presidential leadership so that you don't have the, the same bodies that we can become accustomed to in reading the history books, but rather we get an alternative. And this, for me, picks up that same option, only it tells a story, and I've had this conversation with a number of people, instead of putting you to sleep with a collection of boring facts and footnotes, you get a tale to weave together what is factual material, and you're in danger of sort of stumbling upon things that you otherwise would not encounter without having some professor stand in front of a classroom and, and drone on for hours at end. And this is something different. And this is something different. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Eric Anderson. He's a former intelligence operative who now is writing in fiction with a little bit of truth sprinkled in about his work in a trilogy of books. First Osiris, then comes Anubis, his newest, and soon coming to a bookstore near you, his third one as well. Eric, stay with me. Got to run a few commercials. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 7.34. And we're back. And if you're looking for a gift for Dad for Father's Day, consider the new book, The Second in a Trilogy, by Eric Anderson. First came Osiris. Now comes Anubis. It's a story of ISIS, the Middle East, the war on terror, and a whole lot more. My name's Peter Solomon. Okay, um, Eric, I just, I mean, because it could happen. Donald Trump just fired John Bolton and made you national security advisor. What would you tell us to do about about ISIS in the Middle East? The, I, I, I lament to say that the, no one will pass Mr. Bolton's uh, departure uh, or miss Mr. Bolton's departure. The, the last thing the president of the United States needed was somebody who demonstrated intolerance for new ideas. And, so the departure of a hardline hawk within the, the national security aperture uh, is not a loss for the average American citizen. In fact, I think it's it's to our betterment, if anything. Uh, you know, what the president needs to look for is a means of engaging in dialogue uh, with the leadership that is existent for ISIS, and whether we find it abhorrent or not. Uh, you know, you recall that we have a past history of dealing with dictators of all various stripes and, and lower levels of behavior. And if the president thinks he can do business with Mr. Putin, he certainly can do business with the folks who arguably represent probably over 100 million members of the Muslim faith at this point. All right. Now, certainly my supposition about John Bolton being replaced is just that a supposition. It hasn't happened. But again, what would you advise a president to do? My advice to the president is that we need to provide an outreach program that looks at essentially a Marshall Plan for the member states of Northern Africa and the Levant. And that is in order to restore something that looks like dignity uh, back to the Syrian population, to the Egyptian population, uh, the Libyan population, there has to be an opportunity afforded to the young men and women of, of those countries whom many of have have a decent education and would certainly be capable of providing the goods that we have now shipped off to China uh, or to the, the now Southeast Asia for manufacturing. And it's a goal from a long-term perspective that says, one, we, we are willing to recognize Islam as a 
co-equal to the Christian faith, and two, that we recognize that you are important individuals who have an opportunity to make a valuable contribution to the world economy, and we're going to act accordingly. And while we consider the people of ISIS our enemy right now, we used to think that way about Germany and Japan, and they're our friends. Absolutely. Hmm. And if you look at the, you know, the, the, the source of fundamentalist uh, Islamic faith within the Middle East is not necessarily this, uh, what we would consider rabid cleric uh, in the form of Mr. al-Baghdadi, but rather it is Saudi Arabia uh, and the Wahhabist faith that is resident within Saudi Arabia. And we would consider the Saudis to be very good allies and somebody that we wanted to keep on our side. And that's where we need to practice a very similar outreach in dealing with members of the Islamic State. And the, the thing that I would also like to remember, remind the president is that the Islamic State represent, represents the Sunni side of the Islamic faith, not the Shia. And so they become almost a natural ally in our efforts to recontain the Iranians and get them out of what they seem to be establishing as sort of this arc of Shia that runs through Iraq, then to Syria, and all the way over to Lebanon. Uh, and that we, we really need to be looking at what are our natural connections within the region and whom can we deal with in, in trying to shut that down. Well, you raised two interesting points for me, though. One is Saudi Arabia's role in all this. As one, they claim to be our friends. And two, rumor has it they're financing a lot of ISIS's work. Yeah, you, you do. You find this contradiction within the, the Saudi government and, and certainly within the practice of the Saudi private citizenry. And I think we would be hard-pressed to find that the royal family is funneling cash up to the Islamic State. On the other hand, private citizens within Saudi Arabia are certainly guilty of that and, and certainly guilty of it using the various charitable organizations that are existent just as they are within the Christian faith, within the Islamic faith, to push monies up to this group and to keep them trundling along, being able to pay the soldiers who are there, to be able to pay remittances to the wives and children who have lost their loved ones in the jihadi battle. And so there's got to be a cooperation with Riyadh that says we, we need to shut down this money flow. And that's a, a real impetus that Washington needs to push forward on. Hmm. Certainly. Uh, gosh. You th- who, who, who runs ISIS? Do we know who we would have to negotiate with if we did? You know, the, there is a debate ongoing, I know, within the intelligence community and within the popular media itself that says we're not certain whether we've killed Mr. al-Baghdadi or not. Uh, my personal contention is that Mr. al-Baghdadi is alive and well, much like Osama bin Laden is just simply biding his time for the next place to emerge. And we've seen some hints at where that potentially could be in the activities that are transpiring down in Libya, either in Benghazi or Tripoli. Uh, and so I suspect that Mr. Baghdadi sits there and continues to pull at least the theological uh, reins that keep this organization going. But the answer that I can't give you, and I don't think anybody who's being honest with the intelligence community can as well, is who are the operatives that are sitting behind Mr. Baghdadi? Who's in charge of, of determining what the targets will be? Who's in charge of determining which of the actors will be selected to carry out those missions? and when they're going to transpire. And, you know, what we found in targeting al-Qaeda was that the guy most likely to die was that second-in-command, the person who is in charge of determining those operations. We have not succeeded in doing the same thing with Islamic State. Hmm. 
Why do you write? Why do I write? Mm-hmm. Because I, I think that I have an opportunity. I, you have to go back in, in my past. Um, I was an academic who chose to leave the university uh, that I was teaching at the University of Missouri and, and go into government. One, to provide a service to the American population. I felt it was my obligation to give back after the country was so good in providing me an education and opportunities that I otherwise would not have had. But then you realize after a while and working at this that you you glean the lessons that should be shared with other people, and this is my opportunity to do that. Uh, and I've, I've written several academic books, uh, and then I've moved on to this frontier, because I realized that if you write for academics, it's the same handful of people who read your things over and over again, whereas if you're willing to take on this uh, fictional world, as you put it, uh, what was the term you gave me? I have to remember now. Faction. Faction. If you go if you go to the business of faction, you can reach out to people who otherwise probably wouldn't consider this in a longer term, and they get an opportunity to be just as conversant as the guy who sits and reads the New York Times every morning. And you give them a possibility they might not otherwise consider. And that that's my intention. Yes, uh, and, I, and if you disagree with me, that's wonderful. I, I have no problem with being told I'm wrong. That that's part of the business. Mm-mm-mm-mm. What's been the reaction of your friends in the intelligence world to the books? It's kind of funny. The folks who work political Islam within the intelligence community have picked it up and, and actually very much enjoy the writing. Uh, they, I, I get various comments in my emails that, you know, you, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, and, it, and part of this draws upon my previous history. I, I was part of the CIA Red Cell, a group of five senior analysts within the agency whose job it was to take the regular reporting that the intelligence community sees and turn it not necessarily 180, but sometimes 45 degrees or 90 degrees out from what the, the analytical uh, common parlance would have been, or the, the analytical agreement would have been, and say, no, have you considered the following? And as one of my friends uh, said after I retired and went into this, he says, you know, you haven't changed at all. You continue to make people's heads hurt when you get down and put things in print. And that's why I've done it, and they've enjoyed it. You like making people's heads hurt. And, you know, actually, I do, sad to say. I, I think it's, you know, it's not necessarily that I want to be a contrarian, but rather than I'm offering up some food for thought that you can then go home and say, you know, I, I didn't take this into consideration this morning, and now I have to as I work for it. And, and that, that, I think, is something that you pick up if you like to teach, and I do. Uh, it's something that you pick up and you hope that you can carry on and that you hope people will pass along. And that it's not, a, not threatening your pro- particular perspective, but rather I'm trying to make you think about a different one. Do you ever worry for your own safety, though, between the intelligence community, community, the Islamic State, and just generally crazy people out there? They might be cranky <laughs> with you. Uh, yes, uh, and in fact, uh, my my address is not listed. Uh, everybody does contact through me, as you probably discovered, has to go through the public relations folks, who have been well versed in the fact that you, you do not release where I live. So. I, I'm, I'm kind, and I tell people I live up in the northwest corner of the United States, but after that, it's uh, sort of vague, and there are a fair, fair number of us up here. Hmm. If you could you do know, it. My concern is not, uh, by the way, my concern is not with necessarily uh, somebody within the American community deciding that it's time to shut down what they would perceive as an, an errant intelligence officer. And I, I, again, I'll make clear, all of this material is cleared through the intelligence community but rather that I, I have somebody who's a member of the Islamic faith who perceives that I have 
slighted uh, their chosen faith, and that one worries me, as you can tell, with what we see take place in Europe and what we see take place in our own country. But it doesn't stop the writing, does it? It does not. Okay. Can I I'm, still, I'm still a fairly good shot. Good. Can I at least have a preview of coming attractions? What's the title for the third book? The third book is called Horus, and what Horus does is it takes us from the unraveling that we've seen within Anubis to a here's how we reconsolidate and where we're ready now to cross the Mediterranean, not to march to the gates of Madrid, but rather to go up and burn Notre Dame. Uh, and if you thought Anubis was going to leave you sleepless, Horus, I've been told, uh, leaves you sitting there pondering for long hours. And that's where Horus will take us, and hopefully we'll be seeing that somewhere in the February time frame. Yep. When it happens, please make sure your publicists let me know, because we'll do this again. Uh, we'll do that, Peter. Thank you. I always enjoyed my dialogue with you. Thank you. When do you have a website? We do. Uh, the book is available, of course, on Amazon. Uh, but you can get at the website through Done Books. That would be D-U-N-N books.com. And what you'll find on there are previous interviews that I've done uh, across the, both the television and the radio networks uh, and a sequence of what we run as newspaper items uh, published with the Houston Chronicle uh, and with Canadian defense formats, and then the blog site that we keep as well. So you get sort of a perspective as to what I'm thinking on multiple subjects. And it's a, I, I find it a fun site to play with. And I'd like to say thank you to Eric Anderson for his service to the country and intelligence work, and now for his service to the reader in his new trilogy, Osiris, Anubis, and soon-to-be Horus, playing What If with the Middle East. Thank you, Eric Anderson. Thank you, Peter. Have a good day. You too. My pleasure. And hopefully we've gotten you in the mood for Father's Day next weekend. Think about Dad and how much you love him. Tell him so. Buy him a good gift, whether it's um, Raising Happy Daughters or Anubis, Osiris, or the soon-to-be Horus. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinions, studies, reactions, I know I'll be listening. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer. Couldn't do it without you, Phil. And to Ann Tideman Solomon, my associate producer. She's a critical part of this operation, and I'm forever grateful. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.